Monty Python. G'day and welcome to Museopunks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson and I am going to be one of your hosts for today's episode. But in a joyous moment, I am joined by two wonderful co-hosts, Jason, Chad. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hi, Suze. I would love for each of you to introduce yourselves so that people have a sense of who is going to be uh, helping co-host this episode. Jason, why don't you kick it off? Hi, I'm Jason Alderman, and I'm a creative technologist. I'm based in San Diego, California in the United States, and I've worked on many projects in Balboa Park with Balboa Park Online Collaborative. Chad? And yes, I am Chad Weinard. I am a museum technologist and a consultant based in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm currently leading digital initiatives for the Williams College Museum of Art. Thank you both so much. So I have to say our decision to work together on this episode came about a little bit serendipitously. I knew as Jeffrey Insko left Museopunks that I was really interested in bringing him in as a guest on the show to talk about what it means to to leave the sector, why he was leaving the sector and to think a little bit about uh, his exit strategy. Uh, so I was thinking about people coming and going from the sector and Chad, you happened to send me a DM in Twitter right at that moment. And what did, what would you want to talk about? Right. Well, well, Jason and I had this idea and, um, it's one that we batted around at MCN last year. And the week before I sent you that email, Suze, um, Jason hit me up on Slack and said, that idea, remember that idea we had? Um, it was called Exit Interview. Let's let's get that rolling. And I said, oh, oh, I wasn't sure that was good enough to get rolling, but... Um, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> it, it, it Do you want to launch into the pitch, Chad? Or, uh... <laughs> yeah, we better launch into the pitch pretty, pretty quickly or I'll be exiting and interviewing. <laughs> Okay, so the premise of this is, you know, that one person in your museum who's been around for ages, who knows everything or or that young upstart, the steely eyed one with all the ideas who's made much needed waves in the last year or two on staff. What happens when they leave the museum? Hmm. What happens when they move on to a different position entirely? Exit Interview is our new podcast to capture the wisdom of former museum professionals as they move on to other challenges. What do they wish they'd known when they started? What projects are they most proud of? What are the torches they want their successors to pick up? What can other professions learn from museums? And what are they up to and excited about now? People come to the museum field and work in it and journey out of it in wildly circuitous ways. And we want to tell their stories. We hope you'll join us. So find out more at exitinterview.me or on Twitter at... Exit interview me. So 
This is pretty pretty amazing to think that you are having uh, this whole discussion, this whole podcast coming up all about people leaving the sector. And I think it really taps into something that we're seeing more and more in the sector, which is not just people leaving. And I think it's a particular problem that I'm aware of in the technology space, although I'm sure it's happening right around the sector, but also people being willing and in fact, quite publicly talking about what it means to leave. There was a recent post about the idea of quit lit of people really being public about how and why they're leaving it feels like exit interview plays into the same idea exactly we we wanted to try to be a more silly jovial hr department and try to capture some of the the knowledge of people who are leaving the profession but we wanted to do so in a lighthearted way and not be all doom and gloom I think it's important to to think about, um, you know, not just leaving the sector as something that's sad or um, a loss, but in many cases it it should be um, celebrated. Um, and this is an opportunity, as we see it, uh, for those that are interested to to be able to look back and um, to to. Think about their time in museums, and and maybe maybe throw in some ideas uh, uh, to those who, that are still in the sector. So one of the things that I think is really lovely, you're talking about people's circuitous routes in and around the museum sector and out of the sector. When I first came to the museum sector, one of the things that really intrigued me was that very few people, at least in the technology space, seem to have a straight way into museums. I think it's different when we're talking about an area like collections management, where there are some pretty defined paths as to how people get there. But technology is not that space. How did you each end up in the museum world? Goodness, I I got into the museum world through art history of all things. Um, I remember in grad school, I was in art history school and doing um, technology stuff on the side, um, some web development. Um, back, back when Flash was a thing, remember that? Um, that was something I was interested in. I never quite knew which would be a hobby and which might be a job. Um, and so when museums started getting interested in technology and museum technology became a thing, um, it was kind of uh, best of both worlds for me. Um, and so I, I really got my start through the curatorial door, um, started doing digital things and, and moved more in that direction. Yeah, I think uh, from every project I've ever seen that you've worked on, I feel that you retain that curatorial sense, which is also a really lovely eye to be bringing with you into that space. Right. It's it's something I'm super passionate about. I think um, knowing the content and uh, building things that work along with that content, um, even when we're talking about interfaces, even when we're talking about visitor experience, um, to, to build something that matches that um, is where the magic is. Jason, we were talking the other day uh, off air about your somewhat uh, interesting, I think, uh, journey to museums. Can you share a little bit about how you ended up here? I won't get into too many of the details, but this is probably the third or fourth profession that I'm on. I started out uh, in the military for several years 
and then uh, worked at an educational software company making games for preschoolers, and then worked into uh, consultancies making enterprise software for big corporations, Fortune 500 companies. And it was at the end of a, a probably three or four years at a consultancy in San Diego that I went to museum camp at the Museum of Art and History in Santa Cruz, Nina Simons Museum. Oh, fantastic. And it was fantastic. And you slept uh, overnight in the museum and worked on several activities. And uh, it was uh, ocean swimming. It was the most unorthodox, amazing conference that I had been to at the time. And so I was sold and wanted to try to get into museum exhibit design. And so I found out about the Balboa Park Online Collaborative and saw on Twitter that Chad had just accepted the job as the uh, director of digital media there. And I asked him if I could uh, buy him a coffee and find out how to break into the world of museums. And that coffee led to uh, uh, a breakfast with his boss. And that led to a, a consulting job offer and everything went from there. Chad, that is so generous of you, and yet not in any way, I think, surprising from this part of the museum world. Or in fact, I think the museum world in general, I think we're an incredibly generous sector. Yeah, that was probably the the most profitable coffee that um, uh, <laughs> I had that summer by far. But you would have gotten so much more sleep if you hadn't accepted that oh, coffee. That's, that's probably true, but it would have been much, much less fun. <laughs> that is fantastic. Well... Jason and Chad, it is fabulous fabulous to have you both here on Museo Punks. Chad, you are only with us for the intro and outro. I am afraid that um, with my nascent uh, audio editing skills, I didn't think juggling four audio tracks was quite the way to do this. So uh, I uh, have kicked you off for the uh, next part of the uh, of the show, which is our fabulous interviews. We are going to be talking to Jeffrey Insko, my recent co-host for Museo Punks and longtime friend, as well as to Roz Lawler, who is at Tate and who came to museums actually later in her career. In my case, I'm not just focusing on the exit interview. With this episode, we're thinking about the flows that people uh, bring to and from museums, how people end up here, but what they take from this career. I am really excited to get into both of these interviews. So, uh, Jason, I will speak with you in a second. And, Chad, we will see you after the jump. Until recently, Jeffrey Insko was a museopunk and cultural activist based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His work played thoughtfully at the intersection of digital culture, mindfulness, strategic subversion, and DIY. His most recent position in the museum sector was running The Studio, a nexus of design, development, and workflow at Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh. He previously held positions at the Andy Warhol Museum, Carnegie Mellon University, and the Mattress Factory. Jeffrey, welcome to Museo Punks. <laughs> hey, first time caller. <laughs> How's it going? Ah, things are great. It is so wonderful to have you as a guest for this episode. I had wondered if we were going to make it happen, and I'm so glad we could. Well, it's awesome to to hear your voice again and also uh, your uh, co-host voice for this episode. Huzzah! Jason, hi, you want to say hi? <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, 
In late December, you announced just via a very quiet post on Medium that you would be leaving the museum sector to take up a position in the outside world. <laughs> so before we talk a little bit about your decision to leave museums, can you tell me about your new role? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, first week of January, I kind of um, started a, a new adventure uh, in in the private sector. I, I went corporate, as they say. <laughs> um, so I am now uh, sitting on uh, the digital commerce team at a large uh, Pittsburgh-based retailer. Um, and um, the DCOM team, uh, my team, we kind of oversee all of the customer-facing digital channels um, for the company, like a website, um, mobile apps, any type of... Um, physical space, uh, engagement. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it may surprise some people, I think, um, this change, but, um, it's definitely not that dissimilar to the work I was doing at museums, surprisingly enough. Um, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a great company. I really, I I don't want to get too into the details of, the specifics of the company just because it's a new environment. But anybody who knows Pittsburgh um, and knows the uh, it's, uh, it's one of the bigger brands here in in town, um, 400 locations, $9 billion annual revenue. Um, and it's, it's, it's exciting for me. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing now. So Jeffrey, what excites you the most about your new position and the opportunities that yeah. you have there? Um, the thing that excites me most really is getting back into uh, the world of uh, strategic marketing and strategic engagement. That's kind of the world I, I came from and cut my teeth in. Um, I was, I mean, I'm, I've always kind of considered myself a technologist, I guess, but it was, it, it's been one of those kind of technologist was always secondary to the the work of connecting with people um and technology was usually just the meet one of the mediums media <clears throat> that i that i found myself working in to connect um people with ideas or people with um objects or in this case people with products in my new position um and the company that i'm working for now it's it's interesting um it's 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 a legacy institution, right? It's 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 been around for a long time, um, founded prior to the internet, and is kind of trying to figure out how to um, succeed in in a world where you know we have um, things like Amazon, and particularly Amazon Go, right? Well, I don't know if you're familiar with what Amazon Go is, but it's it's their kind of um, uh, internet connected store that um, is monitored with sensors and people can just walk in and scan a phone and walk out with their stuff and it automatically bills them. So um, it's it's a really interesting opportunity for me to think about um, uh, meaningful, compelling engagements at, at the scale of um, uh, uh, that, right? So um, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, Jeffrey, I think it was really interesting that you mentioned that this is almost a return to um, sort of the continuum of where your career 
was mm-hmm. earlier, you've been so visible as a contributor to the discourse around museums and technology, not just in your job, but in things like museo punks and in your mm-hmm. writing. I was wondering how this might impact your sense of identity, but it sounds like this actually feels really um, like it's returning to something core for you. Yeah, I I would definitely describe it that way. Um, I think it feels a little bit like, um, like coming home in a way. I mean, I always, I mean, not that museums weren't home to me for, for 10 years. Um, but, um, it definitely, as I was considering making this move, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't an overnight decision. I'd been thinking about, um, making a change for more than a year really, and considering it thoughtfully, um, taking into account. Yeah. You know, like, um, this, this professional identity that, had built up over the years, whether it be museo punks or Twitter or, you know, um, whatever, um, how, how I was going to deal with that. Um, and, uh, you know, would it, would, would I be okay walking away from that? Right. Like, so I actually use this change, this as, as a, and I've been considering like withdrawing from the internet for a little bit. Um, and I kind of used it as an opportunity to, um, to, to kind of, disassociate from Twitter and, you know, social media and, and kind of just bring it back to basics for me. I know. I, I, I noticed that you archived or deleted all of your tweets, that your website stand, stands vacant. You've become not just less visible, but you've almost gone through a process of erasure of so much of what you've done. Is it about a more deliberate engagement with technology, which is something we've spoken about before, about your sense of mindfulness, or is it about managing and changing that online brand to something much more closely aligned with your new role? No. And honestly, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I'm, uh, I'm intending to, uh, create the, the corporate Jeff brand. (laughs) Um, you know, I, um, it's definitely rooted in mindfulness. It's rooted in, um, focus, you know, focusing on things that are, uh, in front of me, things that are, um, in, in the presence, uh, in my presence at the moment. Right. Um, and honestly, the, the, um, the identity that, that did build over the years, it, it's going to sound totally weird, but it was not like an intentional strategic thing. It just kind of happened. And, and I kind of felt, I like felt a lot of pressure once it was there to, to maintain it. Um, you know, uh, and so that it's, it's refreshing not to have that. You've spent a lot of time thinking about museums and cultural organizations over the past several years. And what are things that you think that the outside world could learn or should adopt from museums and cultural institutions that you're maybe bringing with you as you go to your new role? Oh, uh, yeah, great question. I think I think the museum world offers a lot um, to the outside world. Um, for example, you know, in this in this new role of mine, it's a it's a big company, right? It's um, a complex organization. Um, it's a diverse set of stakeholders, depending on you know what project I'm I'm 
dealing with at the time. And so museums, I, you know, I don't think they're I don't think there is a more complex network of stakeholders than, you know, than museums, right? Like, uh, you know, think of the muse tech community, people, in, you know, listening to this podcast are regularly, they find themselves in the Bermuda Triangle of curator, educator, and technologist, right? And, and, uh, and um, there's, there's really not nothing more complex than that, than that. Um, and so while, yeah, sure, this new role, I'm, I have a lot of complex relationships to deal with to, 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 to make projects, to realize projects and, and have them emerge into the real world. But, um, museums do offer that, uh, if you're good at navigating the, 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 um, environment or networks that exist in museums, um, you're going to, it can, it's going to translate elsewhere. Um, and I also think um, one of the reasons why I think my new employer liked me for the position when I really had no no retail experience um, other than um, kind of agency side of things prior to my time in museums was that um, that companies are starting to value the 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 fusion of the digital with the physical and museums play in that space right museum museums play uh elegantly in that space and a lot of the work that um i i i dealt with over over the years and museums played in that space and so the idea that we can fuse the digital with the physical in interesting ways um is something from museums i, I think really translates to to anything really that's just the world we live in now. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. It, one of the things that I was thinking about is what um, would attract people in outside organizations to museum professionals and that melding of online and on-site of thinking about um, experiential aspects of the world and work is, I think, a really big part of that. Mm-hmm. What do you wish you had done in the sector that you didn't have a chance to do? Or is there projects that need to get done that no one's working on that we really should be? Yeah, I think some the the projects that that should happen and I feel really need to happen are the are the collaborative projects across institutions. Um Museums are uh, staff strapped and and resource strapped, and to the extent that they can work together, um, figure out the standards, and build something bigger than themselves, um, it, it is it would be remarkable if if projects like that could happen. And I know it's hard, you know. I know. Um, it's it's on on the front end of getting those projects started and maintaining those projects and keeping them going is 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 not a trivial thing but um i think that's really where the the impact um the the larger impact can be realized i know that in your work at the studio you did a lot of work that tied together um the many institutions Mm -hmm. in pittsburgh even within the carnegie uh, museum network but uh, of those projects, what are the 
the projects that you were the most proud of and also what might have been some projects that you feel were the most fun to work on but might have been overlooked by people yeah oh cool i like um it, i love i love question like that jason because it um allows me to kind of reflect on the body of work um i think probably the project that uh i would be most proud of would be the light clock at Carnegie Museum of Art. And this was a project that the studio worked on um, for about nine months and it ran it. Um, it ran all of 2017 and um, it, it was a, it was a huge challenge. It was the first kind of physical object that we designed and fabricated. It was a really complex installation um, some some cutting edge um, never before um, seen software came out of it and um, it's something that I'll, I'll definitely I'm, I'll be proud of for a long time um, I think a project that that might have been overlooked or or um, a little bit hidden was the last project that we delivered for the studio, my last project that I delivered for the studio. Um, uh, the rest of the team obviously is, is still working really hard there at the studio. But um, we built a cabinet of curiosity and put it in the Pittsburgh airport. And we installed that right before Christmas of um, last year. And so it's, 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 you can only see it if you're traveling because it's behind security, but it fused the collections of all four museums it, um, you know, we, we laser scanned museum objects and printed them out in bronze, um, and have them mounted on the cabinet. It's really an elegant thing. So if you're tra traveling through Pittsburgh, definitely check it out. Um, but, but it's a project that I'm proud of, but very few people have seen. It sounds fantastic. It actually makes me feel like I need to fly into Pittsburgh next time I come visiting as opposed to driving up there because it does sound like a really beautiful object and beautiful creation. Yeah, it's not even – documentation isn't even online for it. So it's one of those things where you like you just kind of have to like know about it, I guess. Ah, uh, that's fantastic. A couple of a couple of quick questions. I mean, one of the things we haven't spoken about yet is why now was the right time for you to transition. I know that if you're thinking about sector change, I'm sure there's many many things, many factors that go into something like this. What was what was it about this moment that made it the right time to to move? Yeah, the, uh, um, there were a ton of factors uh, that came into this decision, and like I said earlier, you know, I'd been thinking about it and considering it and contemplating it for for a long time. Um, and yeah, uh, it's definitely a big risk professionally that one that I definitely had to weigh and consider. Um, but with respect to timing, you know, it was a combination of a couple things. It was a, a, certainly a combination of the opportunity, right? Like it, it was an opportunity I felt what it f was a good fit for me, um, professionally and personally. Um, you know, the company is uh, very family friendly, um, very progressive, um, has a culture that's rooted in positivity. So it was one of that all played into the factor of making, making a change, but then also on the, on the previous employer side of things, there were some leadership changes that were happening. Um, and, um, some, 
of the leadership that was really supportive of the work that I was doing um, was moving on. And so um, it's one of those one of those things where, you know, the opportunity was there, but then also um, your advocate from above uh, is moving on. So I wasn't really sure of how um, the work was going to be supported in the future. So it was um, it was the right time. So obviously, this is a big decision that you had to, to, to think about for a while. And as you said, uh, there was the opportunity and then a, a confluence of factors at your home institution. Uh, I've got a few questions around that. Sure. What sort of reactions have you gotten by leaving? And what advice would you give to those people who might be considering leaving the museum field? And any advice to those people who are staying in the museum field of... Uh, that maybe a little bit of a pep talk. Yeah, yeah. It's not getting too doom and gloom. No, no. So I, I also I, I want to be really clear that this wasn't, the, you know, this this shouldn't be seen. I don't want this to be seen as a referendum on the museum sector because if an opportunity, like if an opportunity at a museum in Pittsburgh were to present itself. I probably would have stayed in the sector, but the decision to move out of the sector was rooted in the fact that my family is tied to Pittsburgh. We love Pittsburgh. Um, And so personal factors trumped the, the professional sector factors, if that makes sense. So, um, you know, if I were to stay in the museum sector, I would have had, it would have necessitated a move or maybe a move into consulting, which is not something that I really wanted to do. So, um, so that, that, you know, I definitely want that to be clear is that, you know, I, I still love museums. I still love, um, the people who work in museums and the network that exists. I think professionally, um, the, the muse tech and museo punk network that's out there is one of the most vibrant professional communities that, um, exists. Um, and, so yeah, as far as someone who is thinking of leaving the sector, um, I would I I would definitely recommend they take their time with that decision um, and weigh all the factors, both professionally, personally, um, and make sure that that what they're moving into is the right is the right fit for them to the best ability that they can. Right? I mean, we we don't have crystal balls, but. <laughs> Um, you know, you can, you can definitely, um, you know, map out the things that are important to you and, and realize if, if the shift meets those needs, right? Yeah, Jeffrey, I think it's really interesting and important that you mention both personal factors, but also location and how important it is. It was something I really struggled with back home in Australia and in Newcastle. You know, it was, I lived in a city of 125,000 people and I think it's actual official jobs in uh, museums and cultural institutions. There were around 60 of them. So the possibility of, of changing and progressing in a museum career is such an easier thing if moving is on the cards right. and if it's not it actually it can be really challenging for for growth and to be in a place where you're really stretching yourself um 
if if you can't be changing and having that flexibility people in big cities i think there are still limited positions but at least there is some opportunity whereas if you're in a small city or you know a, a small town your capacity to move and change is very limited yeah definitely and that plays into you know some of the discussions around equity and um uh, and and those sorts of things, but yeah, no, we were, um, you know, it's something again. As I was considering a move, like you know, Jill and I were talking about it, you know, um, whether or not we would be interested in a move, um, you know, taking the kids out of school that they love and and putting them um, somewhere new. And so we just, we came to the decision and, and, you know, it was an easy decision for us where it was like, you know, we're, we love it here. Um, anyone who came to MCN last year knows how awesome the city is. And, um, that, that trumped any, any kind of business decision on my end of things. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And it is a factor I understand all too well. I, my ability to move to Baltimore was really a once in a lifetime moment in my life where if circumstances hadn't laid out exactly as they did at that time, I don't think I would have had that opportunity. And you have to time it so well. Mm -hmm. So Jeffrey, just before we wrap up, one of the things I was just wondering, every time we finish this podcast, we ask people how uh, listeners can get in contact with them, but you are so deliberately cutting down your online connections. I didn't know whether that was still an option. And if it's not, how does that, how does that feel? Does that feel like a loss? Is there a sense of um, uncertainty about being so much uh, less connected than you were? People can still get in touch with me. Um, You know, there's a reason why the Twitter account is not deleted and it's just empty. So um, somebody wants to shoot a DM, uh, they can do that. I'll, I'll probably log in in a month or two and, and just make sure nobody's trying, you know, nobody's nothing pressing is, is coming up. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, again, yeah. I mean, it was, it's definitely an intentional thing on my part. Um, and it's, 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 it's allowing some mental space, um, to really focus on things that are meaningful and important at this point in my life, both professionally and personally. And, um, yeah, no, if somebody wants to get in touch, I would recommend just um, shooting a DM on Twitter or if you have my email, that's probably the best way, email or text. Jeffrey, thank you so much for uh, being on Museopunks. Uh, this was really a wonderful interview and it was great to get some parting insight as you head on to uh, other opportunities. No, thank you both. It was it was always, uh, Museopunks always kind of held a really... Um, uh, warm spot in my heart. Um, and I'm so glad that Suze, um, you're, you're carrying it forward. Um, and I will remain a fan, uh, the biggest fan and, and, uh, (laughs) and a regular listener. So. That is fantastic, Jeffrey. It has been wonderful working with you over the last several years, and I look forward to keeping an eye on what you are doing into the future. But in the meantime, uh, I think, That's a wrap on this interview.
In this segment today, we have uh, Roz Lawler with us. She's an experienced digital professional with a track record of successfully leading and implementing digital strategy for world-leading commercial and nonprofit organizations. Her enviable employment record includes Channel 4, Ministry of Sound, Radio 1, and Random House. From the arrival of Napster in the music industry to on-demand viewing and broadcast, from the ebook revolution to changing funding models and charity, her work is focused on helping organizations adapt to seismic industry shifts and changing consumer behavior. Now the digital director for the Tate, Roz is excited to bring her experience to the museum and art worlds. So thank you for being on our show today. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, you're currently the digital director at the Tate. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that position and what your current role involves? Sure. So I've been there for four years and I basically oversee all our online platforms. So that's Tate's main website where you will find 150,000 um, digitized artworks, where you'll find all the information about how to visit and lots of content about our art and artworks. It includes the e-commerce platform, which has recently been relaunched, um, includes things like our app. It includes fantastic things like our in-gallery experiences and also have a wonderful content team who uh, do loads of great writing and interactive and make fantastic videos. Roz, that is fantastic. Can you just give me a little bit of a sense of the size and the scope of the digital team at Tate? What is the structure of the digital division? I think it's useful to get a sense of different organizations and different museums and what that structure looks like. Yeah, absolutely. People do cut it very different ways. So I have last count 24 people in the team, plus a bunch of freelancers who we can kind of flex with. Um, but within that, there's a small product team. So I head up, have a head of product and development, and she manages two product managers, a UX developer and an analyst. We have a very small um, in-house dev team of two people. We're going to go up to three soon. Uh, I have a content team who is slightly bigger. So that includes um, producers, assistant producers, and some uh, a couple of film specialists. Um, and we also have a team that are fully funded by Bloomberg at the moment. Bloomberg are one of our biggest sponsors, and they kind of focus on the Bloomberg content. And I have a small e-commerce team. So when I joined Tate, actually, this was quite disparate. Um, the digital was split across three different teams. So over the past four years, we've really brought that together uh, and made it knit together as one team. Thank you. Uh, so that's such a, a large team that works with so many different aspects of the museum. Are there any times that you feel that your experience outside museums has given you a unique perspective on problems that you faced with your museum? So essentially the jobs that I've done previously have been very similar to this of running large websites, large online platforms, which both deliver a lot of content and also have a commercial function. So for example, in publishing, you know, we have lots of content about authors and books, but also it was a platform for selling eBooks or referring on to other commercial websites. You know, similarly in, in the music industry, uh, we worked on, on content heavy sites, lots of great videos about music, but also there was a commercial push there as well. So a lot of that experience kind of comes to bear here as well. Um, and one of the big projects that we've worked on over the past four years, which is really coming to fruition now, is to pull the commercial and the content together into an experience which is really joined up and doesn't jar. You know, but it's just taking people on really meaningful 
user journeys from, say, their favorite artwork through to deeper research or content about that artwork, but then perhaps onto a commercial opportunity to buy a ticket or a related product, but really trying to make that into a seamless journey for whichever route people come into our content or products. That's fascinating. I'm really interested to hear that there's been such a deliberate linking of the, I suppose, the commercial and the educational aspects of the Tate's content. Is that, was that a driving motivator behind you coming to work at Tate or behind you even sort of moving from the e-commerce division of Tate, which I know you were the head of, and moving into the digital division more broadly? So my motivator for joining was really quite a basic one that I really love to hate. <laughs> I've been a massive fan since I was about 15 and uh, I was in another job and I wasn't thinking of leaving anywhere and a recruitment friend of mine said, well, there's a job at Tate and you should really go for it. And I was kind of awestruck that I could have a possibility of working at Tate and came in, as you said, to what was um, a pure e-commerce role. So it kind of hadn't been on my map that I might do that. But um, I met the people at Tate and we got on very well. And I was absolutely delighted to join. And it was nice the first year I was there, I was able to focus on actually what had been quite a small business online uh, and had sort of been a sort of satellite business floating around the outside of Tate. So I really spent the first year trying to think how I could plug that more into the rest of Tate, make it a more joined-up experience, and um, was able to really focus on what the product offer was there. So when you go to um, you know, a museum and you go in the shop, the shop makes sense because it's connected to the experience that you're there, whether that's an exhibition or a collection that you've seen. Whereas if you just stumble across it online, sometimes it doesn't really make much sense. So we really focused on developing two things within the online shop offer. One was the print offer, because that kind of makes sense that you go along to a Tate website and it's got great prints, and gifting, because we've got fantastic things that make unique gifts so I just kind of got that strategy up and running got a team set up there and then there was some movement um, with my ex-colleagues from Tate a couple of people left and it just brought about this opportunity to put in a digital director role which could pull together what had been slightly disparate teams you know kind of content team a digital team and the e-commerce team Mm -hmm. and I was right place right time and was lucky enough to get into that job and really pull it together so that's my mini history at Tate. That's great. Uh, Jeffrey Insko, who is the former co-host of this podcast and who is the other guest on today's show, recently left museums to take up a position with a retailer. And Mm -hmm. I think you've basically flipped that coming from an external position, you know, in marketing and in in e-commerce to the museum world. Are museums thinking about e-commerce differently from the way external organisations are? I mean, I think you're starting to talk about connecting um, the full range of, of products here, sort of the educational, but is this something that museums are, are museums new to thinking about their commercial relationships online in this way and thinking about that connection in this way, or are they actually dealing with e-commerce differently from what's happening outside the sector? So I think there is an aspiration to be Um, like e-commerce businesses outside the sector but most of the museums I know are struggling with a really similar problem and that is the IT infrastructure and legacy platforms that they've got. So uh, one thing that I learned on joining the museum sector is that there is no e-commerce platform which is easy to use and readily available that really sells well across the range of membership tickets and products. Mm. So most uh, museums now are in a situation where they'll perhaps have one uh, 
platform which sells their membership and ticket and another one which sells their online products. And they're two right. disparate um, platforms, which is what we had it take. So we've just uh, got to the end of a project where we brought them together onto one platform, which maybe not be too obvious to the customer, but to us that's a really big deal. You know, so for the first time we've got a platform which sells e-tickets, you can buy your membership and you can also buy a t-shirt at the, first, at the same time. So everybody I talk to in the space is dealing with this same problem, like with limited resources. How do you pull together these um, slightly antiquated uh, legacy systems that we've got? And unfortunately, it'd be great if we could in invent a system that everybody could use and save everybody's time and resources so we can just get on with delivering a great customer experience. But everybody's set up is slightly different. So everybody's mm. trying to patch together slightly different systems, which means we're all working really hard to try and achieve the same thing. I think it really would be wonderful if there was some kind of one size fits all solution, wouldn't it? As yeah. you're describing, yeah. <laughs> so, um, have you experienced any culture shock when you joined the museum sector? You're working in very similar areas and working with e-commerce, but what was the biggest surprise that you had mm -hmm. about working with museums? So, actually, one of the surprises was the similarity. So having worked in different creative industries before, there is the similar uh, kind of emotional um, and different relationships. So you have your, um, your creatives, you know, mm -hmm. your, your artists and your curators in this. It compares quite well to the music industry where you have your musicians. So, you know, you have this creative product that you're trying to treat in the best way possible and make it accessible to the biggest audience possible. So some of those things I thought were very similar. And one thing that really surprised me about the museum industry, having come from industries that are essentially hit industries, right? So you've got publishing, you've got music, they live off their hits and then they have a kind of back catalogue that makes them the money the rest of the time. Right. Discovering that essentially a lot of the museum industry is a hit industry. Yeah. everything pivots around the big exhibitions so when there's a big exhibition everybody's in a great mood and you make all the money off there and you sell your tickets and you upsell your membership and you sell all the catalogues um it actually has a lot of similarities and dealing with a lot of the similar issues that that's great we had a really big exhibition that did really well but how do we make those dips in between the exhibitions shallower so how can we build up our business so that we're not entirely reliant on these exhibitions which in music and uh, publishing you do with your back catalogue it's kind of like what's the equivalent of a back catalogue in the museum industry yeah it's funny that you come from the music industry as well i i dabbled i i come, came from the music industry to yeah. museums and it was again around the time uh, that the internet was starting to show that there were different business models and that was actually what directly led me to the museum world and I know of other people who are working in the museum technology space who had a similar background and I think yeah. it's interesting that there's an analog between these two spaces. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard a number of digital directors speak about is the challenges of hiring technologists into museums and particularly later in their careers mm -hmm. because so many of those skills are directly transferable in fact between sectors i think you are competing with people who are working in multiple other creative sectors as well as uh, then commercial spaces as well and a lot of those other sectors can pay a lot higher than museums pay mm -hmm. have you faced this challenge and if so how is it shaped your team and your hiring choices 
Yeah, so, so you're absolutely right that um, hiring technologies is really difficult um, in this sector because we just don't compete on salary. And with other areas of the team, so for example, in the content team, we do attract people because people who are interested in making content about art love it. We've got great content for them to work with. So there is a big attraction there. Whereas that's not re- usually the reason that people go into being a developer, you know, um, there are other motivations there. So it is hard to find people who will work for our salaries. And um, we have spent a painful amount of money on contractors. There are things I would much rather spend that money on. Um, but sometimes needs must because it does cause a real bottleneck in our team. You know, we can produce a lot more work than we can actually get live sometimes. So um, we are lucky that we do have a developer who is also a brilliant art historian and a writer. So we shall try and keep hold of her for as long as we can. And then kind of get the right recruitment level um, for people to come in and work in the team. So perhaps on their first or second job, and we try and give them really interesting things to work on that will give other motivations other than financial. Uh, so that is difficult for us. And we also um, try and support that with agencies as well so that we can sometimes flex out and get external support, which helps reduce that bottleneck within the team. When do you decide to go for agencies or contractors versus um, when do you decide that you absolutely need to hire somebody in-house for something? Mm -hmm. So that will depend on the project and it will depend on the budget. So when we have sponsored projects, we're able to do that. So a good example is Tate's app. We were able to go externally with that. And then also when there's a very hard deadline. So uh, last year, we a couple of years ago, we had a very hard deadline of a new building opening. We needed a new website. We needed lots of uh, things done by, you know, there was not much flexibility. So at that point as well, we went externally. Um, so just choosing those moments. Also, you know, it's really great to have that knowledge in-house. Uh, and one of the other things that we've done over the past couple of years, you know, going back to that kind of IT stack we were talking about, is really simplifying the setup. So actually that we've got slightly less technical requirement in-house to be able to work on the platforms that we've got. So just kind of scaling that back a little bit and making it simpler to use. I think that's really interesting, this observation that you are starting to simplify the technology stack. I'm sure that has implications then on who you're hiring as well and the sorts of skills you're trying to bring in. I also thought it was interesting you observed you often get people on their first or second job Mm -hmm. certainly in the developer stage you're not the first person I've heard say that I've actually heard a number of people around the sector mention that getting young uh, keen technologists is a great um, thing that happens sort of early in their career and then they tend to move on what are the skills or or the traits we should be hiring for um, both early in uh, people's careers but also as they as they develop what should we be hiring for that will that's important in museums that's a really good question um you know the the, um willingness to learn and be interested and be curious is the underlying kind of value that i think that we need um people who are prepared to be flexible so you know we recently hired um a developer and we're working on different technologies to that which he's been trained in and developed in so actually that's a good learning for him you know he's broadening his skills and at the same time whilst learning being useful for us so that's a really good um entry there um but certainly within the team we try and get a mixture of um people with art knowledge obviously uh because that's all about our credibility and being able to make sure that the things that we're doing are correct and really tied in and joined up with the rest of tate 
and then balance that out with people from a non-arts background, people from a more kind of pure digital background who can bring in some of those skills like user-centered design, like product development. So it's really getting that nice blend between um, kind of museum and art industry and technical uh, technology industries and really marrying those together. The museum field really does feel like a, a great melting pot of all those different disciplines that, that help people. I don't mean to be doom and gloom here, but are we doomed uh, in the museum sector to have high turnover and, and be training people from other sectors? Yeah, I, think, think I don't that... know that I'd say doomed, but that is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's how you manage it, isn't it? So um, say if you're a, a product manager in your mid-30s, you're quite likely, whatever sector you're in, to move about jobs quite frequently. You know, a two to three year stint in a job is not unusual. And I think what we need to be really good at is hiring effectively. So let's go out and find the right people, um, getting them up and running really quickly uh, so, you know, things like induction and getting them established and getting them to be productive really quickly and then making the most of their time while they're there and kind of accepting that, yes, people are going to turn over, you know, and, and actually that that's just a part of the rhythm of employment now. I think not just within the museum sector, but within other sectors. I've had this in other um, areas as well Is you know, you live in London, there are a lot of great jobs around. Yeah, it's interesting. I think in other parts of the museum, say with collections management, people come in knowing that that's what they want to do. They want to work yeah. with often a specific collection or with collections in general. And so then it's really a question of staying within museums and finding the right position or the right collection and yeah. working within that parameter. But the technology space within museums is certainly not like that. Yeah. How important then is it to have a mix of museum experts and non-museum people? And what kind of training do we need to then offer? How, how essential is it that someone who's not from a museum world initially actually comes in and quickly understands what the museum sector is all about? Are there, are there particular things that you want people to come in understanding or is that not essential? So I don't know if anybody's quickly understood the museum sector. I certainly haven't. I keep learning as I go along. I think what the um, important thing to establish, though, is a meaningful and creative dialogue between um, your digital team and perhaps, say, your curatorial or your, your collection care team of actually how they can interface and work together, um, which has been done very successfully. You know, so our... Um, our artwork digitization process, for example, kind of starts off from acquisition and goes through collection care and magically ends up on the website. You know, our product team, our content team work very creatively with curatorial. So it's actually just hooking up those conversations and seeing really what people can learn from one side to the other. We had a really interesting conversation with somebody the other day where they were saying, well, you know, um, um, UX skills and, and understanding creating experiences is all very product and very digital-led. It's very new to museums. And I said, well, it's not, is it? Because that's what curators do. They create experiences. So people are actually thinking about very similar things and doing very similar things, but using very different language. And I think there's a lot you can learn between each side on how you view experiences and how you create them. Even though we're using slightly different language, we are actually doing a very similar thing. Understanding the language between the two uh, fields, industry and museums, is really important, uh, at least from what we've seen as well. Yeah. Do you have any specific advice like that for listeners who might be wanting to make the leap from another industry to the world of museums? 
Um, do I have an advice? That's a really good question. Let me think about that for a moment. Didn't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, that's okay. It's a good question. Um, I, mean, I guess my advice would be do you do your research, go and talk to people, find out what the opportunities are. Um, and like I said, there are a lot of similarities. I mean, what I think one of the motivators and one of the great things that I love about it is that you really get to work both online and in the most amazing spaces. That for me is the really motivating thing. Of uh, There are not many jobs where I think you get to run a fantastic website full of amazing art, but then people open up these incredible spaces for you to do the most inventive things in. You know, So at the moment we've got this incredible VR experience in the middle of a Modigliani exhibition. There are not many places where you really get to work with your audiences both online and offline. So my advice to people is go out and see what's happening in the museums. There are some really incredible things. Um, talk to people, find out how you might get involved, but just go and go and experience it and absorb it, I think. That is a beautiful, positive note on which to uh, to end this discussion, which is really all about change and moving in and out of sectors. Yep. If people would like to get in contact with you, if they'd like to find you online, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, Twitter. I'm at Ros Lawler, so you can uh, send me a message on there. That is great. And we will also put a link to that in the show notes. Ros, thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom and your story with us. It's fascinating to hear both about the uh, what, what you've brought from outside the sector to the museum world, but also to hear about the work you have been working on since joining Tate. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much to Jeffrey and Roz for joining us on Museo Punks today and sharing your insight into progressive museum practice in all its forms. If you want to connect with Jeffrey, you can do so at jinsco on Twitter and you can reach out to Roz at Roz Lawler. Uh, thank you also to my new co-hosts, Jason Alderman and Chad Weinard, for taking on the grand experiment that is becoming co-hosts for this new iteration of Museo Punks. I can't wait for the first eg- episode of Exit Interview, which people can find more about at exitinterview.me or on Twitter at exitinterviewme. Uh, we didn't cover one question, though, about this podcast. Jason, Chad, when is it going to drop? later this year good answer good (laughs) answer (laughs) (laughs) okay uh once you are ready to uh make this episode public uh i think we will publicize it here on museo punks and we will also share a link out on our twitter feed so keep an eye out on museo punks twitter feed as well Museo Punks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. You can connect with me on Twitter at Museo Punks or check out the extended show notes at museopunks.org. And of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes or Stitcher. Jason, Chad, final words, final thoughts? Thank you so much, Suze. This has really been an honor and a swell time. Thanks, Suze. This has been fantastic. It has been so fun to speak to you both. Thank goodness for serendipity.